Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey there, Laura here. There are those people you meet in life and talking with them is just this lovely ride. And when you're done, you realize, hey, I just learned a ton and that was really fun too. That's today's show. Katie Milkman is a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and she also holds an appointment at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine. Her research uses psychology and economics to explore how we can change for the good. The New York Times said her best-selling book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, was one of the eight best books for healthy living in 2021. Katie has such an accessible, practical demeanor about her, which is amazing considering how brilliant and successful she is. Those two things do not always go together. She's able to distill complex bodies of research into easy to digest insights, and she's honest about her own struggles with change. This episode is full of practical tools and helpful insights, and she also talks about how she's learned to be more confident and assertive in the highly male-dominated world of higher education and science. I hope you enjoy hanging with Katie as much as I did. Here we go. Is it fair to say the work you do is understanding how and why people do what they do and how you can, how and why people either change or don't change? Yeah, I think that's a great description. And I'd say, and figuring out how to help. How to help. Yeah, how to help. A lot of the work is related to actually helping people get from where, you know, whatever their goal is, how, how do they execute? What animates you about the process of change? Why, how did you, why do you like this so much? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think, first of all, just, you know, we all have the things we're intrinsically interested in, right? Like my husband's an astronomer. He's intrinsically interested in how old is the universe? And, you know, who isn't, by the way, like those things are very intrinsically interesting, but, you know, he wakes up and that's what, those are the kinds of questions he asks. And like, is there life out there? And how can I find it? And can I design an instrument that will be sensitive enough to detect things in the atmosphere of another planet? And I don't wake up thinking those questions, even though I also am intrinsically interested. I wake up thinking about people and people's problems and how can we, you know, why, why can't my friend quit smoking? And, you know, why, why can't, I get in shape and you know, why can't the student hit their deadlines even though they're so smart and what could help? So I think, you know, we're, we're sort of wired with different things that itch for us intrinsically. And my intrinsic itch has always been about actually people and, and friends and understanding like how, how can we get better? I just never realized that could turn into my career because I was, I studied engineering. I was very practical and quantitative and 
it took a lot of wandering to figure out, wait a minute, this thing that I sort of wake up in the morning wondering about actually could be a scientific career. So I think that's, that's the short answer. What have been the hardest parts about change for you? And, and like, how has your work impacted those areas? I feel like one of the most fun things about what I study is that it actually does help me. So I'm like, selfishly, at some level, I'm doing me search. I mean, I'm not right. Like, for instance, I did a bunch of work on encouraging vaccination. I was the first in line to get a vaccine the minute I was eligible. So I didn't need any encouragement. But some of the things that I study really are my own problems. And once we discover solutions, I, I put them in place in my own life. An example is, and actually, this one went the other way, it was something I started doing. And then I realized, wait, this could be research. As a graduate student, I really struggled at the end of a long day of classes in engineering and economics and uh, business to motivate myself to move, to you know be physically active, even though I'd been an athlete my whole life and I knew that was so important to my productivity and my mental health. I would come home from a long day, just like wanted to curl up on the couch and binge watch TV. And I came up with a strategy of only letting myself enjoy indulgent entertainment while I was exercising. And and it totally transformed so many things for me. I stopped procrastinating at the end of a long day on on work. I'd come home, I'd go straight to the gym, I'd indulge. I actually did it with audiobooks. I got really into listening to things like Harry Potter and the Alex Cross series, and I wanted to hear what would happen next. I'd have a great workout, time flies at the gym, I'd get home and then there's no more procrastinating because I've gotten my indulgence in. So I now call that temptation bundling. I ended up yeah. doing research showing it wasn't just me <laughs> that it helped, but that when we combine something that's fun with a chore, so we can look forward to that chore, uh, it it actually can solve multiple problems. It, it can get us to waste less time and engage more with something we would otherwise procrastinate on doing or, or dread and not do at all. So that's sort of a backwards example, but there's lots of other things where by learning the science of behavior change, it has helped me become so much more productive because I have all the barriers. A sort of big thing in this research for me has been realizing the key to success is that you have to understand what is the specific obstacle in a context that's preventing you from getting to your goal and address that. And the obstacles differ, right? Temptation bundling won't always work. If if you're forgetful and that's the reason that you aren't taking your medication, you don't need to combine the meds with something fun. You just need reminders, right? So depending on what the barrier is, there's all these different solutions. And as I've learned more and more about the research, there are so many hacks that I now implement in my own life. Uh, Because I really do, like, I'm forgetful, I procrastinate, I have bad habits, I, you know, sometimes I lack confidence. I've been, you know, like, as a woman in a predominantly male field, there are certainly rooms I've walked into where I was super intimidated and finding ways to build confidence to have a voice was important in that setting. Totally different than temptation bundling. Oh my God. Will you talk about that? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Just the, if you can name some, you know, I think that's, we have a lot of women in our audience and it's a dynamic that a lot of people are faced struggle with. with. I, yeah. I, I don't think there, there aren't a lot of, tools that I've read, specific tools that go, here's how you could think about that and maybe address it and change it. I don't know that I have great hacks for in the moment. Well, I can tell you a couple of things that people have studied that I think are interesting, but um, 
my best solutions are more systemic in that like I've changed the way I interact with colleagues and the colleagues I've drawn close and that has in turn changed my confidence. So to be a little more concrete about that, one thing that has been life-changing for me really and and wonderful in this career where I have largely been there are other groups that have faced far worse stereotypes I should say than women in business academia you know, we're starting to make some strides on inclusion of women. The inclusion of underrepresented minorities is a far Mm -hmm. bigger challenge. So I don't want to overstate what I've been up against. But certainly being alone is hard. I was the um, only tenured woman in my department, uh, save one for a number of years. And the, the other tenured woman rarely came to meetings perhaps because she'd been alone for so long. So there were many times that I would go into a room without windows for sort of a secret senior faculty vote. And there were no other women in that room, but tons of men. And I found that tough. Okay. So one of the things that I have done that has been amazing, and there's research that backs this up, is I have a group of women, we call ourselves now an an advice club. We started calling ourselves a no club, but now we've become more of an advice club. (laughs) I love that. A no club. A no club. Well, it it came out of, there's this research that Linda Babcock at Carnegie Mellon and and others have done showing that women are bad at saying no to um, non-promotable tasks when they're asked to do them. So a non-promotable task is like office housework, right? Like you take the notes Mm -hmm. in the meeting or could you schedule Mm -hmm. the holiday party or could you sit on this committee no one actually cares about and that you won't get promoted for and you won't get a raise for, but somebody's got to do it. And women get tapped to do that more and are more likely to say yes because uh, we don't want to break people's stereotypes about being agreeable and, and and taking on those kinds of roles. And it has consequences. So Linda has done really interesting research on this topic. She presented about it and she said, my personal solution is I have a no club. It's a group of women. We reach out to each other when we get an ask just for something that's you know outside of our immediate job responsibilities to get sort of a sanity check and help thinking about how do I respond? Because it's often easier to advocate as an outsider than an insider and to see yes. what's a good decision and what's not. So we we copied and pasted that, which PS is one of my other favorite strategies. Like when you hear a good idea, don't just revel in it, like do it yourself, um, which we don't do enough, it turns out. So we had I, I formed a no club with a group of other women um, who were at other universities, but had similar career goals. Both female faculty members at top business schools wanted to excel at research, teaching, and communication about science. And we reach out to each other whenever we have a challenge. And, and it's done all these magical things. And, and now we reach out to each other about more than just no's. It's sort of, it's general advice. One magical thing is I have a community. Even though my immediate group of colleagues wasn't filled with people who look like me, I do have now this feeling of community with this other group we've created. So that gives me social support and, and validation that people like me do excel and, and exist in orbit in this world. Um, I get wisdom from these amazing women, free consulting, right? Like how great is that? So I learned so much from them. And then here's this added benefit that I'd say snuck up on me. And now I understand better from doing research in the process of giving advice to these awesome women, when they came to me with the challenges that they were facing, I actually built confidence and competence myself. And so I, I've actually done some research on this with Lauren Eskris Winkler from the Kellogg School at Northwestern. She had this insight that actually often when we give advice to others, it boosts our confidence and 
if we're working on a similar goal, because if somebody else is willing to listen to us, we see, well, I must not be so clueless. It, it like, you know, big confidence boost there. If, if, yeah. if you're a coach, it forces you to introspect deeply about things you might not think about if you didn't have to tell someone else what to do. And then once you've told someone else, like, no, you shouldn't sit on that committee or like this, you know, this is a bad idea for your career. When you face a similar challenge, you're going to feel hypocritical if you don't follow your own advice. So we've shown, um, we showed in one study that having high school students randomly assigning them to just give other younger peers 10 minutes of advice on how to study more effectively actually improved the advice giver's own grades. So the advice club is magic. That has been a huge deal for me in terms of improving my confidence and I think competence and happiness in a male dominated field. And and it was very deliberately formed of other women, people who I felt were lacking in my sort of most immediate community, but I created a community that I needed that gave me that missing piece. I love this. It's something that, that seems so obvious, but what a, like, what a gift. Can I ask you something nerdy and specific about like, how do you communicate with each other? Is it an open-ended like email chain? Do you have a text thread? Like what, it, how does it look? Oh, it's all of the above, but I would say it started with email. Like, yeah, let's get into the practicalities because you can only copy and paste if you know exactly how to do something. The tactics that's are right. important. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we do it. We started over email and that's still primarily where it lives. And it's like a tag that goes in front of an email, uh, either no club or advice club, depending on what the challenge is. We also now have yeah. Joy Club, which we literally added at the start of this year uh, to share positive news with each other because we realized we needed that too. So the club keeps expanding its function, but you put yeah. the tag in front of the email that you know, you've know you gotten that has some sort of ask or just you need to write an email because it was given, you got an oral ask and then you forward and then the group weighs in, like handle it this way, handle it this way. And you provide some context. Should I do this? Or like, I'm struggling with this aspect. And then everybody jumps on and, and we all prioritize it. Like these are the most important emails we get all day. So you get a response in 30 minutes yeah. normally, maybe faster. Wow. Sometimes we go on tech, you know, we have a text chain too. And actually during the pandemic, we started having, I'd say quarterly Zoom calls just to sort of check in, see how everybody's doing, talk through the challenges, you know, of um, of pandemic life, which, and there were many, um, many new ones. And I should say, actually, the women in my amazing, I should name them, um, Dolly Chug at NYU and Madupe Akinola at Columbia University, also do a lot of research on diversity and inclusion. And so the last two years have been particularly additionally stressful due to wanting to contribute to that dialogue productively and also just being overwhelmed with asks. And so we've, we've, that's part of the reason we also now talk and and check in with each other. I love it. I love it so much. I run a sobriety support community and being someone in recovery, I was really interested in this part of your book because of I have felt that and seen that, the fact that you sharing even your experience and just what has worked for you, not advice, but just this has been my experience. Even for people that have one day of sobriety, it is such a massive factor in them feeling part of, feeling like they have something of value that they can actually be of service. I mean, I have learn that from my own experience, how beneficial that is. But I just love to see that with research backing it because I know that it's true. Absolutely. And And of course, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? This is such an important part 
of their, I think what they've built, which is incredible. Um, the idea of having someone uh, you are responsible for and who you sponsor. I think, I think people still assume that the primary function of that is the mentee, <laughs> but there is yeah. this huge benefit from being a sponsor based 100%. on this research. And I, and I do think, you know, from what I've read that there is a, an understanding of that from the people who designed the program. I'm, I'm glad you loved it. And I just want to double click and say, I didn't mention, but that giving is so important to our satisfaction and happiness. And there's just so much research from giving money to giving time that it makes you happy. And we underestimate how much joy we will get when we give to others as opposed to, you know, buying ourselves stuff or pampering ourselves. Everybody says like pamper yourself. Turns out it's actually better to pamper someone else in terms of your own happiness, which is really neat. Okay. So that's interesting because I wouldn't, there has to be some contextual (laughs) specifics to that because what are women told? Yes, no, absolutely. So let me be more clear. There's really wonderful research showing if you're given, say, you know, $5 to spend on yourself and told to go, go spend that money on yourself versus $5 to spend on someone else, you get more happiness, but you don't appreciate that when you spend it on someone else. That's not to say you shouldn't, you know, you should only care for about other people and do things for other people and never look out for yourself. Absolutely not. But we do underappreciate to a large extent the way if if we're thinking about how could I spend my money or time to increase my happiness, sometimes it's doing something um, for someone else that that can bring us more joy. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy. And we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description, and then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. For a lot of people in this community, not everybody, but a lot of uh, people in that listen to this show uh, because uh, just the history of my work are people that are facing or have faced changing addictions, substance use, destructive behaviors, process addictions, and things like that. One of the things that gets a lot of attention is the date that you stop, right? 
January is a huge quit time for people or resolution time, but I, I don't know if you've seen this research or heard of it, but Strava, which is like the behavior app, surveyed 800 million data points and that most people, like some upwards of 80% of people quit their resolution by January 12th. I'm wondering, what does your research and experience tell us about the role of like a fresh start and how can we use a fresh start, but also not get strangled by failing that fresh start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Both great questions. Let me sort of unpack them and, and go one at a time. First, I'll talk about fresh starts and their power. And then let's talk about this challenge that you raised with the Strava data of, you know, and how far does it get us? So mm -hmm. the magic of the fresh start, which you see in January, is this motive it gives us to try. To, to pursue yeah. a goal that we might otherwise have given up on. There are many moments, January 1st being the most famous, when we feel like we have a clean slate. We feel like we've got closure on one chapter in life and we're opening another. And so this new beginning gives us that sense that, you know, last year I, I tried to quit smoking. I quite tried to quit drinking. I tried to get in shape and I failed, but that was the old me. And this is the new me in the new year. And it's going to be different this time. So that motivates us to try. And we see that not just at on January 1st, we see it to some extent at the start of a new week, the start of a new month, mm -hmm. um, when people celebrate birthdays, the start of a new semester for students, following some holidays that we associate with fresh starts. So think more Labor Day and less Valentine's Day, right? Um, yeah, right. So some, some holidays have that sense and some don't. So at those dates, we see spikes in searches for the term diet on Google. We see people go to the gym more. We see people set goals online about everything from their health to their finances and their education. So it happens naturally. And we can nudge people. Like if we highlight a fresh start date that they might not have been paying attention to, you know, we, we flag the first day of spring on the calendar uh, as opposed to labeling it, you know, the third Thursday in March, we call it the first day of spring, call it out. That becomes more of an attractor for a moment when someone would want to start a new goal. So that's the fresh start effect. It gets us trying. Uh, and I think that's great. The second challenge is though, okay, most things don't just require, you know, a little enthusiasm that you briefly dredge up at a fresh start date. Follow through is a lot more than that, right? I mean, there's a few things actually that are like a one and done. And those, by the way, I always say like, get those done on January 1st or on your birthday, right? Sign up for the colonoscopy, like... <laughs> You know, put your get enrolled in the 401k when you've got that burst of enthusiasm and you can do a one and done that carries you forward. Great. But for most things, we need some sort of sustained effort. And the fresh start effect doesn't provide that. And in fact, almost it's by definition, it's a brief fleeting feeling of a fresh start. And then it leaves you mm. high and dry if you haven't set yourself up for success with other tools beyond a little extra motivation. So I've, you know, never been surprised that a lot of these fail, given that there's so much more in the research on change that you need to do than just feel motivated to, to give something a shot, especially when we're talking about something like addiction. It's it's hard, right? It's much more complex than that, right? Yeah. So anyway, lots of my friends, when they found out I was writing this book, they said, oh, you're writing a book about the fresh start effect. And I, I said, of course not. That would be such a useless book, right? It would have, <laughs> because so many people, it would get them like a week in and then they're done. And so, you know, even though that's probably one of the more the things I have become more of an expert on in the world, I felt like what was really important is we need all of these tools from figuring out how do we make it fun 
to actually pursue our goals so we'll persist, to understanding what it takes to build habits and confidence, to creating social support groups that that can help us on our way, um, to dealing with forgetfulness, which is another barrier to change. So, so that is why uh, Fresh Starts, you know, January 12th, lots of things fail, I think is that we don't set up the structures and the scaffolding we need to support change, which require a lot more than just a burst of motivation. So let's talk about some of those things. I think one of the most common barriers to success is that it's unpleasant to pursue our goals, right? It would be more fun to do the opposite, right? Whether it's it's more fun to sit on the couch and watch TV. It's more fun to take a drag of the next cigarette. It's more fun to eat the unhealthy food. It's more fun to, you know, not study for the exam, but go out to a bar with friends. Um, whatever the goal is, normally there's something more tempting to do in the moment than work towards it. And that's a huge barrier to change. And one thing that's really interesting is Ayelet Fishbach at the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell have shown most of us think when we have some goal and it's important enough to us the best path to success is to just push through, like find the most efficient, effective path to success and and take that one. And it turns out a small fraction of people have a different attitude and approach. What a small fraction of people will actually try to change in by using a path that's fun. They'll look for creating a way to pursue their goal that will be enjoyable in the moment and maybe less efficient and effective. So think like, let's use the gym because it's a really easy example most people can relate to. Like the efficient, effective path to getting in shape fast might be like Stairmaster day after day, but a more fun path that'll take a little longer might be Zumba class with a friend. Okay, so what Ayelet and Caitlin have shown is we're wrong to think efficiency is good. And the reason is if you nudge people to try the fun path, they persist longer. Maybe in a single burst, they don't get as far, but they keep going back, whether it's exercise, study habits, you know, you name it, whatever it is you're trying to change. If you do not enjoy it in the moment, you'll quit at a much higher rate than if you can make the path to your goal one that you in any way look forward to. And it's just mind boggling to me that how little people appreciate that. We just, we're just like, I will just push through. This is important. And that is not the right path. It, it, Time and again, the science shows we need ways to make it enjoyable, whether it's by making it social, by temptation bundling something that you look forward to, to turn it into less of a chore, maybe by gamification, right? You know, bells and whistles that you put, you can sign up for an app that awards you prizes and yeah, mm-hmm. and points and, and whatever it is that makes it more enjoyable for you. If it's the competition element and the leaderboards, my dad loves that. He's like a Fitbit Peloton? junkie and he's always oh. telling me he beat me this week and he loves that. And I'm like, I don't care about that really. <laughs> yeah. I just need my Harry yeah, Potter playing. <laughs> yeah. But we all need our different, whatever it is that makes it fun for you. It, it's not like a one size fits all. So gamification is one way and it ke- creates that persistence. I feel like American puritanical hangover of if it's if it's I gotta work and it's gotta be painful and a struggle. If if I'm doing something important, it must feel that way. Yeah. And that's a really good recipe for quitting. So, but I agree with yeah. you. There is this funny way we put it on a pedestal. It's like purer if you um push through pain and it's more mm-hmm. um respected. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, and so maybe we've yeah, maybe we have put that on a pedestal and it's a mistake. 
and we've got to stop. <laughs> we have to find ways to actually make it enjoyable because because we don't we can't push through at a very high rate. Yeah, I'm so um I, when I was reading this part of your book and actually the whole book um, because you know again my a lot of my lens is is recovery. It's like I just thought it's amazing that anyone overcomes an addiction. It is amazing. It's a, it's, it's a really hard challenge. And we can't even, so many of us struggle with things that aren't chemically addictive, right? And so it's, and then you layer that on top. It's amazing. It's really challenging and it's impre- right, incredible. Right, on so many levels, because because if you're talking about making it fun or making it somewhat enjoyable, those first <laughs> days, sometimes months, are really, that's it's hard to find those those pieces, uh, what can make it enjoyable. Um, so I just, I just want to say that I, I, I was just thinking it's really incredible that people can, you're, you're kind of have all the factors working against you, including the psychological and 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 physical addiction. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I, I do. So first of all, I want to just say addiction is not my area of focus. It's, you know, not something that I specifically have studied. So I'm speaking outside of my expertise here. And yet my suspicion is there are ways, even, even if you can't make it truly fun, there are ways to alleviate the misery and that there may not be enough emphasis placed on what, what silver linings can be created or what joy can be found in that dark part of the journey, whether it's through social, you know, doing it socially or, um, substituting things that you really love and crave that aren't harmful. 100%. So I still think the principle can apply. Let's talk about commitment devices. What are they? How can they be helpful? How do they work? Commitment devices are so powerful. So if tools like making something fun or temptation bundling serve to deal with this challenge of present bias or that we, we tend to, delay um, gratification very poorly. We, we, we crave instant gratification. So if things like making something fun, solve that by changing the equation and making the thing that's good for you less undesirable in the moment, then the flip side is, so that's sort of the carrot, the flip side is adding the stick. Like how do you make the thing that's bad for you even worse so that it, you know there's even more um, of a downside to it? And that's where commitment devices come in. I think people found, find this set of tools very counterintuitive because what they amount to, we're used to, you know, a policymaker, a neighborhood association, an employer, a health plan rewarding or penalizing us based on good behavior, right? Like to, to try to, to change what we do or right. creating rules and laws. Think about like getting a speeding ticket, right? That's an incentive to, you get a fine, you're going to get slapped on the wrist. If you speed, you might be tempted to speed to get somewhere faster, but we're going to, we're going to set up an incentive structure to prevent that. It's all imposed by someone else. And a commitment device, what it does is it, it's you looking to the future, seeing those temptations and imposing those fines and rules and constraints. So it will be more costly for you to make a bad choice in the heat of the moment, right? So it's things like gambling self-exclusion lists, 
where you can sign up knowing you have a gambling addiction and say, I want to be taken out of the casino, not let in, arrested if I show up. I would like to prevent myself from entering. It sounds counterintuitive and people do it. It's antabuse, right? This drug, uh, mm. drug that you can take that makes you nauseous or vomit at the smell of alcohol, recognizing yeah, I don't want to vomit, but I do want my future self to face consequences if I make a decision that I don't want to make. There are also cash commitment devices, which I find particularly fascinating. And this is where you can put money on the line that you will forfeit if you fail to achieve a goal you've set out to achieve. So, um, right, you might say, I want to go to the gym four times in the next month, and I'm going to put $100 on it. And I'm going to name a referee who is going to report, um, you know, my roommate is going to report to a website, or maybe we'll just do this interpersonally, um, whether or not I succeed. And if I don't, I owe, I owe someone a hundred bucks. There are websites where you can put money on the line like this with a referee and money will go to charity and you can choose a cause you hate by the way, to make it really sting. So there's no silver lining. <laughs> right. So one of my favorite studies of commitment devices is actually in the domain of smoking. And it uh, was done by a bunch of economists, including Dean Carlin of um, Northwestern university and John Zinman of Dartmouth. And what they did is they randomly assigned smokers to a condition where they'd get all your traditional tools to try to quit or a commitment device condition where they'd get all the traditional tools plus they could put money on the line that they would have to forfeit in six months if they failed a nicotine or cotinine urine test. And what was amazing is that the people who had access to a way they could put money in, down that they could lose, those folks quit at a 30% higher rate than wow. others. So it was still, these are small quit rates, right? It's like something like 10% quit in one condition and 13% in the other, but it's still a really big improvement. And it's of no, co no cost to society. It's just giving people an extra tool they can use to constrain themselves. So I think they're really underused because they sound weird. Um, yeah. And yet they are very powerful. Would shame be a commitment device? It could be, yeah. I think it, you like, know, it's like like you tell someone, of, I, I, t I'm t I'm going to tell all these people what I'm doing, yeah, and and they'll hold me accountable, and then I'll look bad in front of them if I don't achieve that goal. Yeah, absolutely. It's shame is a penalty. It's a weaker penalty, so I'd call that more of a soft commitment, much weaker. Mm. So think about like the gambling self exclusion list where you sign up, right? You could be like, tell your partner or your um, friends, I'm not gambling, and if I do. Uh, you know, I want you to call me out or you could sign yourself up for this list where you'll get arrested if you walk into a casino, right? You can see one of them is going to be a more powerful incentive than the other. And I'm going with, it's going to be more powerful to not be allowed in, but it's still something and it's a step in that direction. And it's, it's, um, certainly a for form of commitment we can try. Yeah. I was very shocked about those two. I, I wouldn't, they seem counterintuitive to me, but and I thought that would never work with me, but I've never, I'm sure they would, you know, money or like people, like I know people respond to money. Yeah. One of my favorite stories is this um, software guy named Nick Winter, who had a bunch of goals for himself and decided to put his whole life savings at that point on the line. And he said, I'm going to forfeit. It was $14,000. He just moved across the country. He was sort of starting his career. And he had a bunch of goals he wanted to achieve. He wanted to write a book. He wanted to go skydiving. And uh, he said, if I don't do this in this, this short time period, these $14,000 go you know, to charity and I lose them. And he got everything done. And 
Uh, he has this book called Motivation Hacker where he talks about it. But I, I tell the story also. If you have that, if you if something is important enough to you that you value it at a monetary amount, and you think losing that amount would change your decision, and losses, by the way, loom larger than gains. It's a key finding from behavioral economics. We hate mm. losing more than we enjoy winning. So that sting can be a powerful thing that you can harness for yourself if you if you choose to do this. So when it's important enough, that's when I'd recommend using a commitment device. This other thing you talk about is how your peers change you. And so choose them wisely. Um, talk about that. What have you learned? Yeah, this is so important. And um, I think it's intuitive that, that the people you hang around with shape your decisions, right? This is like the advice we all get from our parents growing up, like, you know, don't hang out with the bad eggs. But what's amazing is just how much they shape us and sometimes in ways I wouldn't expect. So one study I really love that illustrates this is just the person you're randomly assigned to room with as a freshman in college affects your grades. If you end up with wow. somebody who is, had performed higher on the verbal SATs, you get better grades as a freshman. Just these... And you might not even speak to this person or befriend them, but you're seeing their study habits, right? Like, are they staying in on Friday night? Or are they going out and partying? And which, whatever they do, that starts to to shape your perceptions of what's normal. And so mm-hmm. and, oh, I, I want to fit in. And also of what works, right? Because there, there's sort of two elements of, of why our social groups shape us. One is conformity pressure. We don't want to be the odd duck. And the other is information. By we look at them and we say, like, what what works? What's what's smart? What are other people doing? You know, if you're surrounded by vegetarians, it makes it seem natural, and you can like learn all the ways that they become vegetarians. I tell a story in my book about a friend and how she converted to vegetarianism after just living around a group in a college setting for a couple of weeks and actually seeing, oh, this isn't so hard. Like, here's how they do it. Here are their tactics. So you can pick up tips, it's easy to hack, and it seems normal. One thing I think we don't do enough, and and I've shown this in research too, is deliberately observe what's working for others and deliberately use it. Like it happens sort of through osmosis. That's what kind of all this research shows when you're paying it, when you're not even meaning to, right? You weren't deliberately copying your college roommate's study habits in most cases, and it's rubbing off on you anyway. But what we show is when you give people a little nudge and say, hey, if there's a goal you've been trying to achieve, go find someone who's doing better, ask them what they're doing and find a hack that's working for them and try to deliberately use it yourself. Like, this seems like you should just do this naturally, but telling people that people are like, oh, light bulb, I hadn't done that. And then <laughs> I know, isn't it funny? they get benefits. So, so there's both mm. the benefit of like who you're around and you can shape that deliberately and it's going to rub off. And then there's this additional opportunity to be deliberate about hacking your emulation. Like you can do it on purpose. It doesn't have to just rub off naturally. I think is it Atomic Habits, James Clear? One of the like the lines that stood out to me from that book is to surround yourself with people where what you want to do, your desired behavior is normal. Yes, absolutely. Although I do think there's a limit to that. And this is also worth noting. Yeah. Uh, it's a good opportunity to sort of say with a caveat, because I think we can think, oh, yeah, I should just 
just sur- surround myself with successful people and I will achieve success too. And there, the limit is, and, and I tell this story about a research study that actually was based on the roommate study I described. So what the Air Force Academy did was they said, okay, let's actually try to get our most at-risk cadets to be more likely to do well in school. Now that we know your roommate matters, let's let's match up the lowest performers with the highest performers so they'll be pulled up. And they're like, well, if the top performers are pulled down a little, that's not a big deal because they're already doing so well. So they engineered this system. Thankfully, they did it experimentally so they could test its value because they thought, well, you know, we'll be the gold standard and, and everyone else will emulate us. And what they found in this test is that actually... Uh, it backfired. So in this case, the what the limit of the situation was, when you're really not achieving at a high level, you're like, you know, most at risk to get Fs in, in school, and you're put in with a straight A student, you have no common ground. And mm. actually, what they had hoped for that social benefit, it wasn't present because there was no glue, there was there was no sort of middle um, and they, the social groups sort of bifurcated, right? These people don't even hang out together. They don't, and it, things actually got worse because now you have no one to talk to and no one to relate to. So that I think is a major thing to keep in mind. It's really helpful to hang around high performers in terms of achieving goals, except they have to be within reach. It can't be people you can't relate to who are so far ahead of you that it just makes you feel bad about yourself. And then it's like, well, how yeah. do you define that balance? But I think hopefully that's enough information for most people to go on and say like, I get it. Like, you know, if I'm starting a new business, I don't want to go hang out with, you know, the people who have the most successful companies in in my community and have that be my network because I'm going to feel bad about myself. I need some other entrepreneurs who are just a little ahead who can become my network. Just like when I formed this advice club, it wasn't of senior women who were seven steps ahead of me on the ladder Mm -hmm. to be my mentors who I could learn from, though that PS has value too. But it was a group of people who were sort of in a similar, we had similar goals, a similar stage. We could push each other forward, strive together, help each other, and, you know, when one gets a little ahead, we learn from them, but you don't want these gaps that are just gigantic in your social group because that, that can be demotivating. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member, or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Tell me something true.